We're going to look this morning at three different chapters in the book of Ephesians. That's right, Jim Samra takes him about 12 weeks to get through two and a half. You know, draw your own conclusions, that's all I'm saying. No, actually what Jim's been able to do for us, which has been uh, fantastic and it's been so needed for me uh, and my understanding of God, my own soul, is he's really allowed us to take some time to look at Ephesians through a microscope because there's so much depth and beauty uh, that's there that it's easy to um, gloss over it and and miss so much of it. And that's really what he's done uh, for us over these past 12 weeks. Uh, Today, though, we're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to take a look at the book of Ephesians more through a telescope, looking at it from the big picture standpoint. But I want to start off by asking you a true or false, true or false statement. Genuine thankfulness requires an active response. True or false? I don't want you to say anything. You can think about it in your heads. Genuine thankfulness requires an active response. So for the last five years, um, part of my job, and I love my job, uh, is I get to take students uh, on missions trips. One of the trips that I've been able to lead for the last five years has been a trip to Poland. And we've had an opportunity to partner with Leszek and a number of other great Christians over there. Uh, It's been phenomenal to see God at work. Uh, At the end of our trip, we always take our students down to the city of Krakow. Krakow is uh, a gorgeous uh, Polish city uh, down in the southern end of Poland. But 45 minutes outside of this gorgeous city is one of the darkest places on all of the earth. It's where the death camp Auschwitz is located. And for the last five years, I've had the opportunity to take students to this concentration camp. And Auschwitz is pretty remarkable in that basically they, they left the camp exactly as it stood when it was liberated in 1942. Uh, literally, they haven't really changed anything. And there's one particular place there that I visit every single year because it's incredibly powerful for me. The entire camp is powerful. There's no way to not allow it to somehow seep into your heart, your soul, and be be struck with the horror. But there's one place there in particular that I visit every year, and and it's actually a cell in one of the buildings that you walk downstairs, and you walk through this dank, dark little hallway, and there's a cell there, and it's the only place in all of the camp where there is actually a, a monument to a man. The man's name was Maximilian Kolbe. And it's the cell where Maximilian Kolbe died. Now, Maximilian Kolbe, uh, in 1940, after the Nazis had already swept through Poland, uh, was arrested. He was taken off to jail, and uh, um, he ran a friary uh, there in Poland, and uh, all of the the, uh, men who were working there were dispersed. Uh, After a few weeks, he was actually sent uh, home, uh, or at least released. He went back to the friary, and for the next two years, he began uh, housing uh, Polish refugees. By uh, late 1941, there were about 3,000 men and women that were actually housed in this friary that he was basically uh, trying to hide and keep uh, away from uh, the German soldiers, the Nazi soldiers. 2,000 of those 3,000 were actually Jews. And uh, in late 1941, uh, the Nazis uh, came in and found all these people and they arrested Maximilian Kolbe and uh, a couple months later he was uh, shipped off to Auschwitz. 
July of 1941, they had a roll call, which was an everyday occurrence, where everyone would come out and they would stand in line, sometimes for hours on end, where they would methodically count off to make sure all of the prisoners were there. Excuse me, on one particular morning, they did roll call and someone was missing. And so the Nazis assumed that this person had escaped and they had a, a rule. If one person escapes, they would randomly choose 10 people to kill in retribution as a way to say, fine, you escape, good for you, but we're going to kill 10 people because of what you did. The awful irony of the story is that the man that they thought had escaped was actually found dead in the latrines that he had been cleaning a few weeks later. But on that July day, 1941, they listed off 10 numbers, not even names, just numbers, randomly. And one of the men whose number they listed off, as he began to step forward, he started sobbing. And he said, my wife, my kids, who's going to care for them? Maximilian Kolbe, whose number was not read off, stepped forward. And he said, I want to take this man's place. Now you could, by the people that were there, that lived to tell this story, there was a, like a visible almost shock. <gasps> because no one ever did that. <laughs> you weren't allowed to step out of line. You weren't allowed to address a Nazi officer. In fact, most that were there thought that he was probably just going to get a bullet in the head in front of everyone and that they were still going to kill the 10 men that they had called. The officer was so shaken by the fact that Maximilian Kolbe had stepped out of line that he actually had to repeat what he said. He literally said, what did that dog say? And Maximilian Kolbe repeated himself. I wish to take this man's place. And to everyone's amazement, the officer agreed to it. Francis Gachovnicek was able to step back in line. And he lived. He made it out of Auschwitz. He was actually reunited with his wife and just passed away at the age of uh, 93 back in 2004. And every single July, he would go back to Auschwitz and he would visit as a way to say thank you for what Maximilian Kolbe did. Now, Maximilian Kolbe was known in Auschwitz as a light. You see, before he ever stepped forward on that July day, he was going around and ministering to the people there, loving them, caring for them, talking to them, encouraging them, praying for them. In fact, there was numerous accounts of times where he actually took the bread, the soup that he was given for his day's food ration, and gave it to other people who were more in need. He was a light. The crazy thing is, is that Maximilian Kolbe also told his fellow prisoners not only that they ought to be loved and encouraged, but that they ought to love and encourage their captors. He was an extraordinary man. And in July of 1941, he was led to this small cell with nine other men, and over the next 12 days was starved to death. Now, in just a second, we're going to move into the text. But I know that what you're feeling right now is pretty heavy. That's a heavy story. Um, 
it's, it's heavy for me just sharing it. And if this is one of the first times you've ever heard it, it's probably fairly heavy for you. I don't want you to feel like you have to put that tension, that feeling, those thoughts behind you. What I want you to do is hang on to that. I want you to hang on to what you're feeling right now and allow that to walk with us into the text. So if you have your Bibles, I do want to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. You see, Paul is explaining in Ephesians chapter 1 all of the things that God is doing. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. In the original language, this is actually one really long run-on sentence. It was kind of uh, gratifying for me to realize that uh, there was other grammar idiots out there. (laughs) Paul, which was one. Uh, And this is what Paul has to say to us. Now, before I jump into it, what I want you to do is really pay attention to all of the ways that God blesses us, okay? Because Paul just starts boom, 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 dropping them out there. So I'm going to read through. You try to pay attention to that. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory." And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul starts off his letter by explaining to the church in Ephesus all of these amazing things that God has done. Boom, 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 one right after another. He starts listing them off. One, three, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Basically means everything that we need to live a full, holy, amazing life. Everything we need, God has already blessed us with that. One, four, God chose us. All right, this ascribes to us value. The same kind of value you feel if you get chosen to be on a sports team or if you're chosen to get into a certain college or if you're chosen uh, um, by your uh, spouse. Hopefully they didn't just half-heartedly agree, right? We feel value when somebody uh, uh, chooses us and this is what God does. God chooses us, ascribing value. One five, he adopts us. God adopted us with all the rights, privileges, riches, and power that that entails, being a son or daughter of the king. In 1.7, he redeems us, buying us out of slavery into sin. In 1.8, he lavishes grace on us. In 1.9, he reveals the mystery of his will to us. The mystery is this, that he is creating or redeeming a people for himself. And he's also redeeming this entire world, and it's going to happen. That's the mystery of his will. And he offers that to us. In 114, he sends the Holy Spirit. God himself (laughs) comes to us. 
1.15, the Spirit guarantees his inheritance to us. Now, the crazy thing about all this, because we start seeing Paul list off one thing after another, is what we find at the beginning of chapter 2, which is the reality that God has begun doing all of this knowing that we hated him. God did all of this knowing that we hated him. We were his enemies. It says in 2.1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, when you hear the Maximilian Kolbe story, humanity must ask the question, why? He didn't know Francis Gachavnicek. They weren't close friends. They just happened to have numbers close to each other. They happened to be standing in the same line. So why? Why does Maximilian Kolbe step forward and offer to take his place? And the same question we're left with in Ephesians 2. Why? Why would God, knowing that we're his enemies, that we hate him, start a plan to bless us beyond our wildest imagination? Why? The question is found in the very next verse, and it's the most important verse in all of Ephesians. The seven most beautiful words that Paul has ever uttered because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us. That's the answer to the question why. It's not because there was no other option, although there was no other option. It's not because God needed us, because he doesn't need us. It's not even because Christ is great, although he is great. It's because of his great love for us. That's why he does it. And Maximilian Kolbe, as a follower of Christ, understood that great love. Two years ago, I was sitting about three rows up from the back, right over there. Hi, guys. And it was June 21st, Father's Day, 2009, and Jim was preaching out of the book of Corinthians. And uh, he uh, started off by saying, hey, uh, fathers, I know it's Father's Day. Uh, the sermon I'm preaching today is not specifically at you, but I really want you to pay attention to what God might want to say to you today. So I said, okay, cool. So Jim started preaching, and, and, and the text um, dealt with using our spiritual gifts in the church. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I kind of got that one wrapped up. I mean, it's what I do for a living, okay? I'm a pastor. I pretty much use any spiritual gift that God has given me. It's what I use in my ministry. I'm already doing that. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying to God, well, God, this is great for 
them. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, they need to hear this, Lord. Amen. But I'm perfect. So then I start thinking, okay, maybe I need to think a little bit more about this. Well, uh, I do woodworking. So I'm like, okay, God, you want me to build you something? You know, like I'm not that good, but you know, whatever. The other, and then I thought, well, I also like to train protection dogs. I'm like, God, if you want a protection dog to stand on the podium, anybody rushes Jim, boom, attack. You know, I'm like, ah, I can do that for you, Lord. But uh, uh, I'm guessing God probably didn't need that. So I, I'm sitting back and I'm listening, just trying to, you know, say, okay, God, I'm, I'm available. What is it that you want? So at the end of the sermon, Jim says, I just want to take 30 seconds and uh, um, I just want you to listen to God. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I wanted to listen to God. So uh, I quieted myself and I said, God, is there something you want to say? Have you ever had a conversation in your mind that probably takes like two seconds in real time, but it feels like it's like five minutes long? All right. That's the kind of conversation that I had with God. Now, uh, um, I don't often hear God this clearly. All right. Uh, I believe God speaks to me. I try to listen to God. I believe that God is a good father. In fact, if I go to my earthly father and ask him for advice, he's going to give me advice. How much more will my heavenly father want to communicate with me? So I'm trying to listen to God. God, is there something that you want to say? And I heard something so clearly in my head that I started having a conversation with God. And what God said to me is he said, uh, I want you to adopt Danelle. Now, Danelle was a little boy that my mom and stepdad had uh, taken in as a foster child. Danelle uh, was born uh, four months premature and had uh, a number of uh, um, some medical conditions that came along uh, with being born that early. Um, and I basically said to God, I said, well, God, you do realize we have three other kids already, right? You know, because I'm not sure if you remember the other three that are five, three, and one, Okay. All right, they're really young. Like, are you sure you don't, you know, you're not talking about a different Danelle that's going to be born in about three or four years? Because, Lord, that would make our, you know, youngest two 11 months apart. And, you know, uh, we're just not sure we're ready for that. And so I'm having this conversation with God, and I finally say, all right, God, fine. I will do it. I'm, I'm willing to do it, but I'm not telling Brenda you have to. <laughs> Literally, that's what I said to him. I, I said, I'm, Brenda's my wife. I said, I'm not telling Brenda you have to. So the prayer ended, and uh, I looked over to Brenda, and I said, hey, did, do you sense God say anything to you? And she's like, uh, maybe I'm supposed to use my nursing skills a little bit, you know? Um, and I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, you, you want to, you know, listen a little longer, and let's see if God says. So, no, I didn't say that, but I, but I said, I said, okay, okay. Um, and she's like, why? Did, did, did you sense God said something to you? And I was like, well, maybe, but we can talk about it later. Now, normally she'd be on that like white on rice. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, what? What did he say? You got to tell me right now. What is it? And she just let it go. <laughs> totally uncharacteristic. And I thought, okay. We didn't talk about it on the way home from church. She didn't ask me later that night. And um, about a month and a half went by. And I had kind of forgotten about it. Uh, a month and a half after this was near the end of July, and I was actually in Poland again. Uh, this time, uh, my wife uh, was able to uh, come over for the last couple of days for the trip. For the last uh, four years previous, I had been uh, uh, leading students there, and she's never been able to come because of our children. So this was a great opportunity for her. Uh, it was our 10-year anniversary, so she came over. She got to see a little bit of the ministry that we did, see uh, all these people that she had heard about for the last number of years and meet them. And, and then uh, Jordan and uh, the other leaders uh, brought our students home, and she and I were going to uh, enjoy some 10-year uh, anniversary time. So uh, we had actually been that morning to Auschwitz. Uh, and, of course, uh, it's incredibly heavy. 
And so it was the first time that she had experienced it. It was probably the fourth or fifth time that I had. It doesn't matter. It's just a heavy thing. And so later that night, we're sitting in a little cafe uh, in Krakow, sipping the most amazing hot chocolate. I don't know what it is about European hot chocolate, but it's amazing. And we're reminiscing, right? We're kind of debriefing over what's happened, uh, what we've just experienced this morning. And we're talking about stuff and she actually starts sharing some of the things that had happened while I was uh, gone in Poland when she had been home with the kids. Her brother and sister-in-law had come into town. He's a pastor out in Montana. And they went over to my mom's house and went swimming at, the, at her pool. And uh, while they were over there, uh, her sister-in-law uh, had met, saw Donnell, and she's like, oh, I wish we lived in Michigan. We'd love to adopt him. And my wife got this weird competitive spirit rolling up in her, you know, okay? So she, she has this thing, and she doesn't say it out loud, but she's thinking in her head, well, you shouldn't be adopting her. We should, we should be adopting him. You shouldn't be doing that. It should be us. What are you, what are you talking about? It should be us. We're... And she's just relaying this really random story to me in Poland. And she must have seen something change in my face because she said, what? And I said, well, do you remember a month and a half ago, the sermon, and she instantly knew what I was talking about. And I said, God told me that we were supposed to adopt Danelle. And her eyes welled up with tears. And she looked at me and she said, I can't do it. I said, okay. She said, I can't do it. We already have three kids and they're young. And quite honestly, she's the stay-at-home mom. I get to walk off to work when there's oatmeal on the ceiling. And that's why I told God, you gotta tell her, I ain't telling her. She said, I can't do it. And I said, well, you know, let's pray about it. So for the next three days uh, while we were there in Poland, I was praying about it and she was not. We came home and uh, when we were home, uh, I said, hey, let's spend some time to pray. Let's spend a couple days, we'll pray. We did, we talked about it. She said, I just don't think I can do it. I don't think God would ask me to do it, it's too hard would be too much. Now in my head, I'm thinking, well, that doesn't sound like God. That sounds like you. But, you know, that ain't the most sensitive thing to say. So I was <laughs> smart enough to keep my mouth shut. And I said, well, let's keep praying. So we did. We, we prayed some more. We prayed some more. We, we went off on vacation. And uh, we took a day and we fasted and prayed about it and came to the end of the night. And she said, I still don't think I can do it. I don't think God wants me to do it. And so I said, okay. I let it go. I thought maybe God's preparing us, just getting us ready for something else. So a few days went by, and it was nap time for the kids. And by kids, I mean me. <laughs> and they were all down, and I was taking a nice little nap on the couch, and my wife was out on the dock uh, uh, enjoying herself and uh, reading, spending time with God. She comes back in after we're all kind of uh, just starting to wake up, and um, she's got tears in her eyes. And she said, God came to me and told me we were supposed to adopt an elf. So, um, basically what happened was the love of God had come to her and said, you can trust me. You can trust me that I love your children and I'm going to take care of them. You can trust me that I love you and I'm going to take care of you. You can trust me that the love that I have shown to you will never ask you to do something you are incapable, incapable of doing. Now, that doesn't mean that that's easy, but it means we can trust the love of God. It's kind of like a, a, a boy who is in the second 
floor window of his house and his house is on fire and smoke is billowing out the window and there's a big brawny fireman who's standing there and he's yelling jump jump I'll catch you and right next to him is a scrawny little dude yelling the same thing jump jump I'll catch you and the little boy jumps into the scrawny man's arms because the scrawny man was his dad because he trusts the love of his father he knows that his dad is not going to let anything happen to him. He knows that his dad is willing to sacrifice his own body to save his son. And that was the love that God has for us, and that was the love that God had for me and my wife, and that was the love that he came and spoke to her that afternoon. And so we went home from that vacation, went to my mom and stepdad's house, and they had been praying for a few months now that God would bring a Christian family to adopt this little boy. They had fallen in love with him, and uh, they had even been trying to get us to say that we would adopt them. We're like, yeah, well, you know, someday, but, you know, not now. And we walked in, and we sat him down, and we said, uh, uh, Mom, Dad, um, God wants us to adopt Danelle, but we, uh, we want to change his name to Maximilian Colby Scott. And they started bawling, <laughs> like good parents. You see, I asked you a question at the beginning, a true-false does genuine or genuine thankfulness requires an active response? Paul answers that for us in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When Paul says this. Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. In other words, you can follow God's example because you are his dearly loved children. He says, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because of God's love for us, our active response is to walk in the way of love with others. And that's why Maximilian Kolbe in July of 1941 was able to step forward and say, I'll take that man's place. Not because the sacrificial love of Christ was an easy thing to follow all the times. It's not. And for the next 10 days, Maximilian Kolbe was starved to death. But Maximilian Kolbe could trust the love of God. Even when it was tough, knowing that God would not ask him to do something he could not do. And that's why of the one and a half million people that were executed at Auschwitz, he was a ray of hope a ray of light, that there's still a placard there today because of what he did. There's a comedian named Jim Gaffigan, and uh, he has four children as well, just like my wife and I, and someone once asked him, uh, um, what's it like to have four kids? And, and this was his response. He says, pretend that you're drowning, and then someone hands you a fourth kid. <laughs> All right, That's, that, is, that is what it feels like at times. That is what it feels like at times. But we could trust that the love of God was good enough that we could do whatever God asks us to do. It's not always been easy, but I would never want it any other way. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved you. I want to take just about 30 seconds and I want to ask the question to you, would you listen to God? 
The reality is that God requires an active love from us. Genuine thankfulness does require active service. So, with that in mind, I want us to ask God, God, is there something that you want to say to us? Now, be nervous. <laughs> be very nervous. Because if you give God carte blanche permission, he may just shake up your life. This is November, National Adoption Month. Maybe some of you are here and God may today ask you to adopt. Maybe your active response to God's love is going to be simply to be nice to people when you're leaving the parking lot. <laughs> Sometimes that's harder, I think. <laughs> Maybe your active response to God's love is going to be to serve at the church. Maybe your active response of love is to write your spouse a love letter. I don't know what it is that God might ask, but I do know this, that when we are genuinely thankful, it will drive us, it requires us to have an active response. So I want to take 30 seconds, and I just want you to ask God, God, what do you want? Is there something you need from me? So let's do that right now. There was another man that was there when Maximilian Colby stepped forward. His name was Jersey Belecki, and Jersey lived to tell the story as well. And uh, this is what he said about Maximilian Colby's death. He said, his death was a shock filled with hope, bringing new life and strength. It was a powerful shaft of light in the darkness of the camp. A powerful shaft of light in the darkness, which is exactly what Christ was. And it's even what Christ said we're supposed to be. We're a light. He said of us, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We want to be lights in our world. That's what genuine thankfulness actually looks like. I want to finish this morning with a prayer, a prayer from Paul. It was what he prayed for the Ephesians and what I'd like to pray over us right now, found in chapter three, verses 16 through 21. He said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.